From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Good afternoon. This is another episode of My Capital Idea. This is Michael Williams, your Defenders of Capitalism host with my co-host, Mitch Whitus. Say hello, Mitch. Hey, everybody. Good to be here again. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Mike. A day or two into the new year and it's going well. 2023 is here. It is, like it or not. <laughs> so I thought we'd talk about, a, you know, it was mostly a headline from last year, being that last year was so long ago, this whole Sam Bankman freed guy, the, the cryptocurrency meltdown with his company, companies, I should say. I thought it might be an interesting idea to just talk about that from a capitalist perspective. Um, I, I think it's unfortunate uh, that that whole thing happened. Do you think that's a good topic? I think it's a great topic. It's dominated the headlines. Well, first of all, crypto or its dramatic rise and then its dramatic fall have dominated the headlines for the past several months. And then this real, I think, collapse of crypto and with Sam Bankman-Fried, we've heard a lot about that since what, the end of October? It just seems like a never-ending soap opera. So I think it's very good to talk about. Yeah, I think it's a good idea to, to kind of cover it. And, and, you know, it's had so many so many different parts of the story. Um, you know, we, we keep threatening to do a, a story on the Federal Reserve and central banking and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, we'll get to that. But, um, but I think that's part of it. I think it's connected to that. I think it's connected to politics. I think it's connected to broader philosophy. You know, people, you know, he... Let's just call him SBF because I don't want to pronounce his whole name, right? That's that's why I guess he came up with. I don't know if he, it was his idea to come up with the acronym S, SBF, and he's one of those guys who says, you know, call me call me share or call me Beyonce, call me SBF. Yeah, that's that's good. That means you're really famous when yeah. you've just got a little moniker like that. But this guy took off like a rocket. I mean, he started these companies just a few years ago, right? I mean, yeah, and the guy's only thirty years old today. Yeah. So there's a lot to this story, and we want to just kind of. You know, extract what we can in terms of lessons and talk about the culture. I, you know, I think it's I I kind of wanted to call this like SBF as sort of a barometer of the culture. I don't think that's quite fair right now. I mean, that, that may be overstating it, but there's a lot of cultural commentary on this. So, and hopefully, we'll have something that's a little bit different than uh, you know your standard um, commentary around this guy and the crypto markets. But what what is it do you think that that made not just made him possible, but really made the crypto cryptocurrencies the these tokens these coins uh, become such a headline and, and take off as you know quote unquote an investment why do you think that happened in the first place well I don't know if I knew Mike I could be very rich by coming up with the next great thing but I could just give you my ideas I, I think you know 10 years ago actually my first job out of undergrad I was working in Washington DC and there there were these whispers about Bitcoin having a currency outside of the dollar. And I just remember thinking at the time, you guys are crazy. What is this? You know, this libertarian fantasy. And now, of course, you know, they could cry all the way to the bank. And, uh, you know, here I am left without any Bitcoin. So the concept and the excitement around Bitcoin, it's been around for a long time, at least in kind of, I would call it like liberty minded circles. And the people who, and, and this is where I think you're going to go, probably, Mike, people who are very skeptical of the federal 
Federal Reserve and just government control of the money supply. So I think that really undergirds where a lot of original excitement came from. But then we've had in the past several years, money has been really cheap and we have seen that people want to get good returns on their money. And really, it seems like the only way that could happen was either going through equities and then when equities weren't enough, uh, going into these new uh, fancy things called cryptocurrencies. And so in a way, I think the, the Federal Reserve was also responsible for easy monetary policies that helped create a bubble. And I think, you know, people, we, we hear more and more about it, how much money people are making, people buying Lamborghinis because they've made so much money in Bitcoin over the span of a few years or a few months. And it became a, a hysteria, like the tulip craze in the Netherlands several hundred years ago. Uh, it just got out of control. And, and so I don't, that's what, that's my unscientific opinion. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I, I think that's, I, I think that's something that more and more people need to realize is the connection between these bubbles, if you will, you know, where you see some asset class or some brand new thing, the new, new thing that just takes off as a fad, at least. Maybe it's, I, I think the whole crypto technology is probably longer term than just a fad, but as a currency and, and the way this has happened, I think there's a causal connection between having really cheap money, having money that's created by the Federal Reserve or other central banks around the world. You know, their purpose is to stimulate economic activity and in, at least that's on the surface what it is. My, my, as you've heard me say before, my view is the purpose of a central bank is to keep a welfare regulatory state rolling for as long as it can. But that cheap money is actually a big part of it. I think you're right. And chasing lots of different asset classes and ultimately saying, okay, here's the new, new thing that that really can make me rich. It's unfortunate because I, I agree with you. The initial seeds of whoever, you know, the, the guy who created or the or the group or guy or whoever it is that created Bitcoin originally, I think had the, the good intentions of saying, let's have a system of currency and trading that can be outside the control of a fiat currency system. But it's been really interesting to watch how this, this thing exploded in terms of not just Bitcoin, but more and more alternative currencies and then exchanges and then a whole infrastructure that's being built around that. And so, and I don't really know the story that well, but this this Sam Bankman-Fried SBF guy created you know, an exchange and it became the, the fourth largest cryptocurrency exchange out there. And they also created their own coin. But I mean, this guy's net worth rocketed up to $26 billion. And then in one day, it almost evaporated. How did that so, happen? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big fall. Yeah. Now, Mike, before we go on, can you um, talk just for a second? When we say the phrase cheap money, I think maybe that's confusing sometimes because, you know, we think, well, money's money. I have a, you know, I get a dollar. It's a dollar. That's the same price to me. But what does that phrase actually mean, cheap money? No, I think that's really good that you're asking that. Um, I think that people who think a dollar is a dollar have to re-examine their premises about that because a dollar is only good for what it can buy. It only has value. Just like anything else, it only has value if there's someone, a valuer, someone who's saying, I, I want that. Money itself is the kind of common denominator that everyone uses. And it's oftentimes their national currency to say, here's how I measure every other value that I have that can be purchased or traded for. But a central bank that can create money at will without some commensurate increase in wealth and actual values, because no one really cares about the little pieces of paper, right? No one values that. 
They value if they can buy a car, if they can buy a new iPhone, or if they can uh, you know, go out to a really nice meal with their spouse or family, or if they can go on vacation. Those are the actual values. That's the wealth, the productive ability of other people to provide you values and you to trade with these little green pieces of paper with dead, dead presidents on them, right? Yeah. No one values those. It used to be that there were, you know, the, the old school is that, you know, you'd have a, a, a commodity, a precious metals, a gold backing of a dollar that actually did have value. Uh, but that's no longer the case. There's not really gold behind the dollars. And so, but because the the U.S. government has been so strong relative to other governments around the world, strong and, and having honesty and integrity relative to other governments, people people accept the dollar as a, as a standard, as a new standard. But uh, it's still... If they're creating more and more of them, that cheapens the ones that already exist, cheapens all of them. And that's what I mean by cheap money. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it, it, I think that's good, Mike, because it ultimately goes back to maybe where the foundation of Bitcoin came from, which is, can we have a system of exchange that some council of a small group of people can't just devalue? And can we actually get around that system? I think was the original kind of really cool intent of Bitcoin. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, cool. Also, uh, you know, kind of on the edge of legality. I think a lot of people who were early adopters in Bitcoin were trying to not only get away from the problems of a central bank and a fiat currency and, and having their store of value cheapened on a daily basis, but also wanted to, to trade in you know, quote, on illegal things, drugs or pornography or whatever it might be. But that that oftentimes is the case on in innovation. You know, the, the innovators on the edge of something and they often get characterized by the by the establishment of, oh, those guys are the criminals. Those are the bad guys. There's some truth in that, I think. But the idea, as we're saying, is was a good one to say, well, let's have a store of value that's created and more mobility, having, you know, not having to carry around a bunch of heavy gold or something or other value, other some other values uh, that you would trade with, um, have it be easily transferable in seconds around the world to, to do trading and exchanges. But but that kind of thing is encouraged. I mean, the speculation that's gone on in that market, uh, it's kind of like the old gold rush itself, where people would bid the mines up, or in this case, bid the virtual mines up. It's it's so interesting that they have the same kind of terminology, mining, mining for Bitcoin, using the you know the computing machinery to to solve solve the algorithm for for the to earn bitcoins. But to focus back on SBF, I mean he started because you have this environment of speculation and in, maybe innovation and speculation in terms of this cryptocurrency market. There was lots of people out there, you know, going to work in this field, either mining or facilitating trade. I think FIX itself as an exchange, the original company that SBF started, I mean, is most of their trading done in anything other than cryptocurrencies? Do you know? Or was it? I'm not sure, Mike. Yeah. My sense is that, you know, a lot of these exchanges are like, okay, we're going to we're going to exchange bitcoins for Ethereum coins and virtually other, you know, they're, they're just trading lots of different kinds of trip, crypt, cryptocurrencies rather than turning them back into dollars. But there were a lot of people who invested in these things who no longer have their money. You know, it's been characterized. Many of our listeners might have seen some of the testimony that the new guy who's investigating what's gone on there. You know, he was, I think, in charge of the whole Enron fiasco uh, decades ago. And he's characterizing as, you know, as a, as a basically a Ponzi scheme or, a, or just out and out fraud. And now SBF has been arrested 
both his firms, FIX and Alameda Research, was, which was a cryptocurrency trading firm. Both of those firms have collapsed. They're bankrupt. He's now under arrest and being charged with wire fraud, commodities fraud, money laundering, campaign finance violations, which I think is a really interesting twist on this, this story as well, as well as securities fraud. I mean, this guy is now facing up to 115 years in prison. It's a long time, even for a 30-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's fascinating because he he's out. I mean, he, he was arrested, incarcerated in the Bahamas where his firm was located and where his residence was. And, and he got, you know, he got pulled into the U.S. legal system and then he got bailed out. And it's amazing that the, the judge set the bail for $250 million, which is no that's, small amount of money. No, that's substantial, I'd say. Uh, anybody who's studied business law or any, any kind of law knows that the person or whoever's bailing the incarcerated out doesn't come up with all of that. But even at the 10%, I think it's 10% that they actually have to put up. You know, 20, somebody was on the hook for $250 million and had to actually put up $25 million. And he's now, SBF is now asking the judge to keep it a secret in terms of who actually bailed him out. Who could come up with that kind of cash to bail this guy out? And why would they want to? Why would they want to? It looks like it's, I mean, we don't know for sure. You're innocent until proven guilty, but it looks pretty clear that this guy committed lots of fraud, ripped off a lot of people. And uh, why would someone want to bail? What's their motivation to bail this guy out? I don't know. Well, and another interesting part to this story too, Mike, is that right before his empire collapses, the exchange collapses, supposedly this other exchange called Binance, which I do have some familiarity with, supposedly Binance was going to help with a bailout and somehow, I don't know if there was going to be a takeover or something like that. But anyway, it didn't happen. It fell through. So the rest is history, as we know. Yeah, I think they got wind of the horrific, at minimum, horrific accounting fiasco that it was. And maybe potentially they figured out that it was fraudulent in the first place. So they were like, you know, we're not going to go there. I mean, they, like you said, they were going to, I think they were going to take it over. They saw it as an opportunity to say, okay, here's an asset that we could incorporate it into our own uh, platform. But they quickly turned away. And that was the thing that really cascaded, uh, you know, to have having things fall apart immediately. And in another twist, Kevin O'Leary, known as one of the uh, sharks on Shark Tank, I think he goes by Mr. Fantastic or something. He was paid as a I don't know if it was a spokesperson of this exchange or, you know, an influencer. I don't know exactly what you'd call it. But anyway, he was paid millions of dollars to publicly identify with this company. And uh, he was called to testify in front of Congress a few weeks ago after it collapsed. And according to him, it's Binance's fault that this collapsed. I don't know all the details of why Mr. Leary thinks that's the case, but there was some sort of bait and switch involved, I think. And uh, anyway, it's Binance's fault. And so the company that Kevin O'Leary was paid millions of dollars to represent, they were perfectly fine until they were Binance his, came it along. Was, it wasn't anything that he was uh, supporting that was a problem. It was those those bad guys on the other side. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how this kind of thing happens with the bubble, right? In fact, I, it seems like there are a number of celebrities who you see or saw, not anymore, but over the course of the last year before this meltdown, you know, lots of celebrities were attaching their names to the whole crypto markets. It seems like Matt Damon, wasn't Matt Damon doing a bunch of commercials for, I'm not sure if it was for this, but it seemed like something, you know, he was on on the TV uh, hawking and peddling for, for some crypto exchange or currency. That always happens. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with a, 
celebrity lending their fame and endorsing. But certainly you have to, first of all, people should be much more aware of that going on and, and, and being able to filter and say, okay, well, Matt Damon or somebody like that is not working for free. That Again, they're being paid to advertise. And, and what kind of expertise, what kind of financial expertise does Matt Damon have? I mean, I'm a fan of his movies, but what kind of expertise does he have? And should I invest you know, any portion of my wealth based upon a commercial like that? But whenever you have a bubble, you have more and more of that happening. And people you know, jumping, you know, feeding frenzy and people jumping on the bandwagon and the fear of missing out. And, and we certainly had that. And, and now, of course, it comes full circle because more and more people are saying, well, I got burned or I know people who got burned, or at least I've heard about people getting burned and we should have more regulation. We should have our government look into this and maybe have more protection because this is the wild west. This whole, this whole cryptocurrency thing is going to, is burning people and, and, you know, taking their money and we need to have more oversight. What's your, what's your thought on that, Mitch? Well, no, I, th- I think that's, that's the, ultimate climax to the story, right? Is that not only do people lose a lot of money, the exchange collapses, the entire bubble bursts, but what we're having now is the predictable calls for more regulation. This was wild, wild west capitalism. We need to put a stop so that this can never happen again. And only government can help do that, right? That's right. And the the interesting twist is the, uh, I mentioned before that SBF was amongst his many charges, many criminal charges is also campaign finance violations. And he was, he actually was the, the second largest donor to the Biden campaign next to Michael Bloomberg, which is interesting. And he was the second largest donor as well to the Democratic Party. Now, again, there are lots of wealthy people, billionaires, who give money to candidates trying to persuade them about how to vote or what pol- what public policy is good or not. And that's not necessarily bad in of itself, in my view. I, I don't think, I've actually even said before, I hear people say there's too much money in politics. I'm not sure I agree with that. There's too much politics and money, in my view. And there's too much, too many things that the, uh, our government officials can vote on that affect our daily lives. So it's natural that it's going to attract capital and and donations. But it's amazing how much money this guy was giving to uh, liberal causes. He gave money to some Republicans. But from what I can tell, it's a very tiny percentage that is at least provable. Now, you have these dark money, this term dark money, where you have it very difficult to trace who the actual donors are, you know, super PACs and so forth. That's a whole nother issue we could talk about sometime is campaign finance, you know, what that what that really means. I mean, I think it's a, a problem for free speech, but I do think there should be some transparency. To me, it's fascinating. And it, it's like part of the whole culture that we're looking at right now is you've got a guy like this who's bilking people out of money, but giving that money away to lots of causes, including socialist, leftist, political causes. And he's doing it in the name of, I don't know if you, we've talked about this much, but this whole concept called effective altruism. You know, he he claimed to not really be interested in money. I mean, he would show up for interviews in his shorts and, and a t-shirt and not having any kind of display of wealth. And his whole motivation was to earn lots of money, earn billions, but to give it away and to have a more effective altruistic environment and have have all these good causes that he could claim to be supporting. Well, and he came out a few weeks ago and said, yeah, most of that was bunk. I did it mostly for the show. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen quotes of him saying, in fact, I wrote down a quote. He said, yeah, this is this is a dumb game we woke Westerners play to get people to like us. I mean, that 
that seems like a interesting admission. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I'd say that when I was about to get 115 years in prison, but it is an interesting admission. Well, and his whole his whole mentality of how he's gone about it, even since his arrest, has been interesting. I mean, he did even before he was arrested, after the bankruptcy, but before he got arrested, he was going around on lots of media shows, you know, saying, "Oh, I'm really sorry. I apologize. I screwed up. I should have been looking at it closer." You know, the understatement of the last decade. But this issue of effective altruism. In fact, he was in charge of a, something called the Center for Effective Altruism. Somebody hired him to, to do that before he before he took off on this uh, finance and crypto career. And his background is really fascinating. I mean, his parents are both law professors at Stanford University, you know, a very prestigious university in the U.S. And it's amazing what they must be teaching at Stanford. But they're prominent attorneys and professors on federal tax law, on ethics, the intersection of law and economics, moral philosophy. I mean, these are two people who raised him evidently to think about this, quote, effective altruism. And I think we should talk about that a little bit. I mean, the implication is that we've had lots of altruism out there and it's been pretty ineffective. And I agree with that. I mean, that's something that we talk about as capitalists, you know, the underlying motivation and engine of capitalism is self-interest. People actually looking out for their long-term self-interest and trading with others, finding win-win relationships where they can trade and both parties voluntarily think they're doing better off from the trade. But altruism is no about sacrifice, about always giving and sacrificing for someone else. If you're looking out for yourself, then that's bad. And I do think that's, that's a connection people should make. That's an association people should make between two distinctly different kinds of way of organizing society. One, capitalism, that is, as I said, motivated by self-interest. The other being socialism, motivated by sacrifice. Or collectivism, you might collectivism say. Collectivism and halterism go, go hand in hand. And that's what's being taught at Stanford. Uh, that's what's being taught at Stanford. And that's certainly what was motivating this SBF guy. But it's a scam. I mean, it, it all comes down to you know his motivation to uh, earn money isn't really about earning. It's about taking money uh, fraudulently from other people and then gaining self-esteem, false self-esteem by donating to causes and politi- political uh, candidates to make him feel good about himself. You know, it's really a, a false sense of self-esteem. And it all ultimately came crashing down around him. But I think, you know, the culture has to ask itself and, and look at themselves. Are, are we as, as Americans and, and, and citizens should be looking at ourselves and saying, what, what is it that caused this? I mean, first of all, like we said, we, you got the, the cheap money, you got the, the central bank that is, again, in my mind, set up to basically continue the welfare state, welfare regulatory state, which in of itself is anti-freedom, anti-constitutional, and ultimately not sustainable. And then you have this social theory that's driving uh, people like this to to take advantage of people, ultimately. Yeah. One thing that's really interesting to me, too, there's also an issue, I think, on the rule of law here and connected with tribalism. And we've spoken about how tribal things are today, especially. <laughs> and, you know, I've spoken with a lot of conservative friends and, you know, for them, they don't really care what SBF did so much. His biggest issue, his biggest crime is that he donated to Democrat campaigns, right? But this idea, like, you know, if he'd actually donated to Republican campaigns, these people probably wouldn't really care as much. No, I think you're right. I think you're right about that. Although I, I do think 
I mean, it's interesting to me. Uh, I had this conversation with somebody about, uh, I think this, this SBF came up, but we were talking about dark money and they were saying, well, you know, naming off the usual suspects. I mean, I just named uh, Bloomberg, who's, you know, who, who ran for ran for president as a Republican, but is a huge Democratic uh, contributor, which is interesting in them itself. But you have these these names, you have Soros on the left or the Koch brothers or whatever on the right. Yeah, full um, disclosure, I, I worked for the Charles Koch Institute. So, well, and, and, and in my view, uh, the Kochs are heroes. Uh, and that's what that's one of the points I was going to make. I mean, do they make donations to influence public policy with with you know mostly primarily conservative republicans probably although they they i think they support a lot of truly freedom causes uh, that are that many of the republicans especially on the social conservative side uh, are against but i do think it's important to make the distinction and this is my point of if you have business people like the Kochs or soros who are saying i want to donate to politicians and campaigns and issues where I'm trying to protect myself as a business person. That's a lot different than someone who's trying to manipulate public policy to actually have the government extract more wealth from business people or the middle class who are actually, you know, if they're donating to actually control public policy to control more people versus saying, no, I want to keep more of my wealth. There's a difference there. Don't you think? I do. I think, you know, I've been in a lot of discussions over the years since I worked for the Charles Koch Institute, which actually now... You you bring up the name Coke, and that's not even a darling for Republicans anymore either, as you alluded to. Um, Charles Coke has not been particularly supportive of Donald Trump, and so I, I think that was a major reason why why now, you know, the the Cokes are are viewed as a little more renegade right, by the both the right and the left, and I kind of like that a little bit. But I do too. I, I do too. I mean, the, uh, and that's what I mean by the you know, it's more of a self defense thing. They're they're, and I think they, I actually think they do believe more in freedom. I think they believe more at an ideological level uh, in the system that we're talking about, and. You know, the system of capitalism, the system of freedom, the, the system of voluntary trade, mutually voluntary win-win uh, relationships. Um, I think they're actually supportive of that mostly. So I have no problem with business people trying to influence elections. I think there should be uh, transparency. And, you know, the, and the whole issue of dark money is, was created because of the campaign finance laws. You know, in my view, most of those should be uh, should be repealed. They're, they're, they're unconstitutional violations of free speech. But this whole story, I mean, just has so many different legs on it with regard to our current culture. And, and it's it's a reflection you know, of, of a get rich quick, not having to earn something type of society based on uh, cheap money and false collectivist, altruist, do-gooder type of reputation building, which ultimately is going to collapse. I, I think that summed it up really well there, Mike. And I'm, my question for you is, so, you know, as a good defender of capitalism, I guess, what's the lens through which you you see this entire issue? I'm, I'm sure there's some rule of law involved. There's this altruism versus collectivism involved. But from your perspective, you know, what what should happen next? What should happen next to SBF? What should happen next in terms of what the government does about all of this? You know what? What happens from a capitalist perspective? Well, certainly, uh, and you made the point, the strong point about uh, the rule of law. And this guy was evidently uh, defrauding lots of people. 
and he should go to jail for a long time. And, and whatever wealth that can be clawed back or recovered should be. And, and the people, I don't know if the Shark Tank guy should, uh, I, don't, I don't know enough about his involvement, but there, if there are people out there who are, who are supportive of him, enabling him, they should be held to account as well in some way or another. Now, whether it's criminal, criminal accountability or, or just more people shunning them or saying, you know, you're part of the bad guys here and they should not be rewarded. And the whole culture that actually celebrated this guy, he was showing up on lots of talk shows and lots of different forums because of his effective altruism label. You know, he wasn't how today's culture characterizes these dirty capitalists who are trying to take advantage of us. He was the good guy. And those people should really, really look in the mirror because more often than not, they're vilifying and calling dirty capitalists the really productive people. So the lens that we should look at, first of all, like you say, is rule of law in the short term and, and saying this guy should be held accountable. But we should look further out in terms of the rule of law and what kind of system we want. I think it's calling for more of the same medicine when you have the government getting more involved in these markets. And the really scary story uh, in the crypto markets is where you, you're talking about central banks coming up with their own. You know, If you can't beat them, you join them. As we said at the outset, cryptocurrencies were invented the innovation was to say, let me go around this central banking system that seems to continue to erode my wealth. Let me find a way to actually uh, store my value in a better way and evade these official thieves, so to speak. And now we've got the central banks around the world, including the Federal Reserve in the US, who are trying to create their own cashless society through a cryptocurrency a central bank digital currency. And that's a really spooky thing from a privacy standpoint, because then they're going to be able to look at every transaction you have. And I think that's one of, one of the motivations that these central planners have is to say, we want to control more of what goes on in society. And that means we want to control how people spend their money. And then we want to make evaluations and consequences in our social engineering utopia, you know, if we don't approve of how that person is spending their money. So the lens that we should look at it is through a principled lens of, you know, people having a right to their own lives, their own freedom, the productive energy that they use, and the fruits of their own labor, and to, to reduce the size and scope of government, not because it's just big, but because it's doing improper things, and because we want to be we want to be free. And, and we know, as we've cataloged on this show, on this podcast multiple times, you know, that when you have a free society, that's when you actually have a thriving society. That's when you have a flourishing society. And people need to have a better understanding of what actually what capitalism is and what it's not. You know, this is just another example of grifters and cronyists. Now, talking about Bitcoin and crypto currencies themselves, Mike. I'm also curious in your role as a financial advisor. So Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have come out and basically said crypto is crap. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. They said it's a horrible investment. And so far, events have transpired that seem to be proving their case. But what do you think actually is the future of cryptocurrency itself? Well, given the regulatory environment, we... Uh, oh, yes. In, uh, the necessary <laughs> little statements that you need to make. Yeah, I'm not going to be giving... I'm not giving any financial advice on this show. And uh, nothing I say should be construed as financial advice. I'm just giving my pop-off opinion here with Mitch about cryptocurrencies. You know, the thing is, you have to really, people like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have earned their chops, right? They, they have done such a good job over the course of 
decades in preserving, growing, enhancing wealth for themselves and their investors, that there's some wisdom there. And I think there's a lot of old guys like that who, who have rejected the new technology in the crypto markets and new technology in some ways otherwise, as far as in, from an investment standpoint. But I also think that, you know, I've heard Warren Buffett really disparage gold and investing in precious metals. And I understand why he says that, because it's not really an investment. You know, gold is not really truly an investment in terms of it actually creating a return. It doesn't create income. And the real way to build wealth over time is to, to buy assets that are productive. But I think there may be an analogous point there about the store of value function of money. And I think that the crypto markets maybe do have more potential than they recognize. Now, personally, I haven't you know gone up with the Bitcoin craze and I haven't gone down with the crash. Uh, I keep trying to learn about it. But I do think that there's Something to the technology. The blockchain technology in specific. Right, to the blockchain technology and its potential as a a way to transfer wealth or store wealth. I don't think it, from what I can tell, it's not going to be really well suited to compete with currency, so to speak. The the time that it takes to make transactions, uh, I haven't been convinced that 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 can be really solved. You know, there's there's plenty of other other technologies out there. You know, the, I'm uh, I'm a customer of Wells Fargo, and you know they have Zelle on on the banking system. You have Venmo. You have all kinds of ways of transferring payments. Uh, Visa, the banking system, Mastercard, American Express. They've they've done a pretty good job of actually innovating the payment system. But I think they're that whole area will be ripe for innovation, and these technologies may play a, play a role. I guess I'm straddling the fence on it, and, and that's how I've been from an investment standpoint. Uh, and whenever I straddle the fence, I go, well, then I don't think I'll go there until I learn more. Yeah, I, I think that's fair, Mike. We were talking before the podcast, and I am not a financial advisor, but I also, you know, I'm not construing anything you say as financial advice, and I hope nobody says anything I say is financial advice. But, you know, last year, well, two years ago now, there was speculation that Bitcoin might be a effective store of value against inflation because of some of the reasons that we spoke about circumventing the central bank. So I a little while back, uh, Bitcoin futures ETFs started becoming a thing. So I, I put some money into a Bitcoin futures ETF. Uh, fortunately, not much because as it turns out, uh, Bitcoin futures were not an effective uh, store of value against inflation or stock market crashes. But you know, I did jump in a little bit on the the cryptocurrency craze, and and I don't regret it actually, um, because like you said, I think there is some disruptive innovation, something going on there that is very interesting to me, and it's it's fun to watch a lot of it happen. It's just very tragic to see how some people have abused the craze to create what we're talking about today. I agree with you. And that, that's the challenge. I've said many times that people need to gain better filters in terms of what they're buying, what they value. I mean, when you are saying, okay, I'm going to trade my dollars, assuming you've earned those dollars, you know, the, the dollars that you have in your bank account or the, the, the dollars that you have, and you say, okay, I'm going to buy a car or, or I want to buy, a, like I said, an iPhone or a vacation, or whatever, be clear on what you're getting and what your value is, whether you really do value that. And, and if you say, I'm going to trade my dollars for an investment, that I think is going to do well? Am I just speculating? Am I just trying to find someone is stupider than me to buy it at a higher price from me? Or does it have some kind of real real value that's, that's productive? Money and inflation 
and value are really interesting concepts that people have to have a better idea on how they work. Uh, and we've talked before about the, the function of money and there, there aren't enough people who think about their money in the right way. And by the right way, I mean, it really is, it does represent, and this is a quote from Ayn Rand, that, you know, she called money a frozen form of productive energy. And I like that so much because it, it says, you know, you've got money and that means that you put some energy, you, you worked, you earned that somehow. And it's frozen there for you. It's a store, like we said, a store of value. You're storing it for later consumption or later investment. And if you understand it that way, you value it more. So Mike, the only thing that I think we haven't fully discussed here, one can imagine in the coming weeks, all the things that Elizabeth Warren is going to be saying and AOC is going to be saying about all of the new regulations and or laws that we need to put in place to make sure that this cannot happen again. And, and you mentioned a little bit earlier, making sure that we understand the proper role of government. But from the defender of capitalism perspective, how do we make sure that doesn't happen again? Is it with just with more government laws and regulations? I think I know the answer you'll give, but... Well, the thing is, you're not going to stop it from happening again. If you say, how do we have a situation that there's never a fraud or Ponzi scheme or that kind of thing perpetrated on the public again, uh, that's not going to happen. I mean, we live in a world where there are going to be people who have bad ethics, bad morals, and they're going to try to take advantage of people. The more the culture adopts a freedom ethos and a individual responsibility ethos, the more that kind of activity gets marginalized. And, and, and I do believe there's a, there's a virtuous spiral when you have a culture that does rely on individual initiative, individualism, individual rights, that becomes more and more marginal versus people just seeing, okay, well... The government's doing this and everyone else is doing this. So I'm going to go ahead and try to take advantage of other people too. But the calls for Elizabeth Warren, I mean, what you should be doing is understanding that those people are part of the problem. They're the ones, I mean, they survive by controlling other people. And in my mind, stealing from them through taxation and through regulation. So you, we should be advocating for a system of freedom and a government that and government officials who have a fairly narrow scope in terms of the things that they can actually control and vote on in our lives. That's what a capitalist system is, a system that actually recognizes and protects the rights of individuals and no other role for government than that. Okay. Got it. Question. No, I think you did. I think we just never explicitly got around to saying what do you think the role of government is in this situation? So I just wanted to make sure I asked that question just to be very clear so that you could be very clear. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you're doing that because, I mean, I sometimes take it for granted when I'm talking about these issues that people, at least our listeners, understand there has to be a principle involved. And the principle is, you know, what does it mean to be a free citizen? And what does it mean to be a free citizen with a government that has a proper role. We're not for anarchy. We're, we definitely believe that a, we want a strong government, but the government has to be one that actually protects individual rights. So in this context, when someone is violating individual rights, when they're defrauding someone, the government absolutely has a role to come in and arrest, stop, and prosecute that person who's perpetrating, that person or company who's perpetrating such a fraud. But again, you know, you have the issue of innocent until proven guilty. All regulations are, are basically inverting that principle, saying that you're guilty before you're innocent. You need, a, you need to ask permission for you to behave in your own sphere of influence. And that's, 
that's the problem we have right now. We have way too much regulation. So people should be calling not for more regulations, but for more freedom and be more free themselves and take personal responsibility as to what they're doing with their own money and their own investments. Amen. <laughs> well, this has been another episode of uh, My Capital Idea with Michael Williams and Mitch Whitus as a part of the Defenders of Capitalism Project. And hopefully you'll be listening to us in the future. Hopefully you enjoyed this and uh, share it with others. Let us know if you have suggestions on other topics. So I've enjoyed talking about the SBF story and I'm sure we'll see more headlines this year, Mitch. Hopefully you'll have a fantastic 2023 as will our audience. All right. Thank you, Mike. And yes, happy new year to everybody. All right. Take care.